Well, welcome again, everybody, to City Life Suffolk this beautiful Saturday afternoon. We appreciate you coming out to be with us. As you, as Anthony said, we're probably out enjoying the weather, maybe like Nate and Watney getting a little sun, a little too much sun. But uh, yeah, whatever you were doing, it's good to have you here. You are here at Good Night, as Anthony said. It is our first ever Welcome Weekend here in Suffolk. So Welcome Weekend is nothing new, though. This isn't the first Welcome Weekend ever. Uh, we, actually, we have a campus in Newport News that celebrated its 10-year anniversary back in January, at the end of January. And that same weekend, we launched. So this is our first ever Welcome Weekend. But really, for the next couple of weeks, we're just talking about what's our DNA as a church. What does discipleship look like for our church? What is our heart for missions like as a church? What are, as Pastor Fred would call, our old treasures and new treasures? If you want to know more about that, come next week. But uh, again, it's not the first ever. We are one church in three locations. So there's Newport News, there's Williamsburg, which has been there for a few years now, and then we're here the few months old, the toddler down here in Suffolk. So how many of you guys have been to all three? You've been to all three campuses before. Respect, respect. Um, If you haven't, you can catch all three podcasts on the website, too. All three every week. I mean, that's ridiculous. Books worth of teaching every weekend that you can find at citylifeva.com. Go to each campus, and you can find the MP3s right there on the front page. But our vision, whether you go to Newport News, whether you come to Suffolk, or you go to Williamsburg, hopefully you listen to a sermon or two, you'll catch that our vision is for more than just whoever meets in the four walls and is listening to that sermon. Our vision is for the city. Our vision is for whatever city, whatever region God has placed us in. For so long, it was the peninsula, but we broke that. We're on the other side now, (laughs) the other side of the water. But our heart is for the city, to reach the city. Obviously, as we talked about in the Welcome Home series when we launched this campus, we want to lock arms with each other. We want to build relationship with each other. We want to get rooted with each other. But as a church, our focus is towards the city. I have a, a good friend who was once a pastor who told me right after we planted that you're not just the pastor of that church. You're the pastor of Suffolk. You're the pastor of that region. And it's a good reminder, not just for me, but for us. We're called to this region. Like Anthony plugged those reach cards. Grab a fistful of those, man. I'm working on every barista that works at Starbucks. Pretty soon, I'm got faith. Every employee's going to come. I don't know if they're going to wear the uniform or not, but they'll be here because I'm working on every one of them. But our heart is for cities. Why? Because, well, it's in our name. But in the past decade, for the first time in history, In history, first time in history, more than half of the world population lives in towns or cities, lives in urban areas. Literally, cities are where the people are. And if you look at the New Testament, you look at Paul himself, he planted and visited churches in no less than 64 different cities over his ministry. The church in Antioch was one of them. It's one of the most notable because it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria. So this church was a thriving one in a big city, and by the time Paul visited it, it had already been rolling. This church was planted by people who were spread by persecution, which ironically, Paul, aka Saul, started, and by the time he got there, it was thriving. And what I love is in the book of Acts, these people that planted this church, they're unnamed. We don't know what their name was. They didn't get a monument in their name, but they sparked a movement because it says in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, that the Lord's hand was with them. You guys believe that the Lord's hand is with us here? Come on, you awake? The Lord's hand is with us. But the verse of note tonight in Acts chapter 11 that I want to look at is it says this little quote that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And this word Christian, just quickly, there's two different theories about what it really meant when they first started saying it. It can be possessive, which would effectively mean Christ's crowd, Christ's people. 
But this suffix, I-A-N-O-S, which is at the end of the Greek, can mean diminutive, which when you think about the persecution that was going on and how it might be a backhanded compliment, yet backhanded that you're a little Jesus, you're little Jesus. I, I, I don't know, if you, if you know me long enough, you know people call me Juice, and in college, I had a friend who was bigger than me and also of Hispanic descent who called me Huguito. In the DR, they called me Hugo, but at college, he called me Huguito, which means little juice. He was bigger than me, so I let him get away with it. But this, this phrase could mean little Christ. And you know, whether you're in the church, our church, another church, you're pastoring the church, you go to the church, or you just think about the church, eventually either you or somebody else will ask, well, what's discipleship look like? And what's funny is discipleship is never really broken down and defined clearly in the Bible. Paul never uses the word disciple as a noun or a verb. And if you ask 10 dedicated scholarly believers the same question, if I grab 10 of you tonight, what's discipleship? I might get 10 completely different answers. And when somebody asks me, well, what, is your, what, is your, what are you doing to make disciples? Usually I know that they've got something in mind. When they're asking me that, sometimes it's, what are you doing to make believers that look a little bit like me? What we see in Antioch, they're making disciples that look like Christ. So much so that they were called little Christs, mini-me's, the original clone army, just posses of Christ's people, spitting images of Jesus Christ. I mean, how many of you guys, I do this quite often, probably every six months, think about... (laughs) If a movie was made about me, every time I see a biopic, that's probably how often. If a movie was made about me in the next five to ten years, who would I want playing myself? Right, who would I want with my role? Anybody, anybody else ever thought this? Probably after every biopic I see, I'm like, oh, let me think. Brad Pitt, yeah, Tom Hardy, Denzel. No, that probably won't work. But just any, you know, just thinking who could play the role. And nobody, if you've thought this, I'm not like Robert De Niro or the guy who action-captured Gollum. Like, those aren't the thoughts, because you want somebody that, you know, looks good, does the part, and is accurate. And as imperfect as it may be, we're called to play the part and the role of Jesus in our culture. We'll never do it perfectly, but we're called to be his hands and feet, to play his role. And I would say that few things are hurting the church these days as much as Christians who call themselves Christians but look nothing like Christ. You know, there's a story of a young man. I'm just going to read it verbatim. It says right here, while attending a university in London years ago, one young man became interested in the Christian faith. Upon his graduation, he was almost convinced, but was still seeking evidence that this faith was practical and true. He accepted employment in East Africa and for seven months lived in the home of a Christian family. As soon as he discovered they were followers of Christ, he decided their home would be the ideal testing ground for the evidence he sought. Unfortunately, as the months passed, he saw nothing that attracted him. The family was apathetic toward him and their faith. They didn't reach out to him or others, and they were casual about their commitments in general. In fact, they complained about any sacrifices they had to make on behalf of others. They never connected with him. Consequently, the student's interest in God turned to disappointment. He left his pursuit of Christ and went a different direction, moving back home to India. He eventually led a revolution. This young man's name was Gandhi. The same young man who became a man and would later say, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. 
You know, when I look at our culture, when I look at the conversations we have, when I look at the interactions we have as a church with the culture, I ask myself, how many, how many people are interested in Christianity but become disinterested because of Christians who look nothing like Jesus? And that in itself is why discipleship is so important. Creating a path and clearing a path so that people can look more and more like Jesus Christ. And discipleship at City Life it's called to mind with, with four numbers, and this is something Pastor Fred's been developing before he ever became pastor at City Life. I remember he did a CYP retreat years and years ago. He was just breaking this out. He wore the same glasses as Rob Bell. He looked kind of like Rob Bell, but he's stayed the course graciously. <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord. But he looks at discipleship, and we at City Life look at discipleship when we think of four numbers. One, six, 12, and 24. The 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. And tonight there's just going to be a lot of teaching. I, I remember this morning, I graduated 10 years ago today from William & Mary. So just going to take that and run with it. But Fred would talk about a treasure at City Life is that we have what he calls a teaching pulpit. And I've been going to church listening to him preach long enough that it's affected me. I don't remember who it was, but he's like, yeah, you, you preach like Fred. He had never heard me preach. He's like, yeah, you preach like Fred. But a teaching pulpit. Charles Spurgeon said sermons should have teaching in them, and their doctrine should be substantial. We don't enter the pulpit to talk for talk's sake. So can I talk and teach tonight? Thank you. <laughs> but the one, in the one, the six, the 12, and the 24 is imitate Christ. Be ye therefore perfect. That's what it used to be. Matthew 5, 48 used to be the key verse that we would point to. But when you think about it, if you're looking to do that with your life, you're going to imitate Christ. That was God in the flesh, living as we live. So imitating Christ is the one thing that we look to. Again, in Antioch, they were discipled so that they looked so much like Jesus, they were called little Christs. But this past weekend, complete rabbit trail here, was the opening weekend for Captain America Civil War. How many of you guys saw it? A few, a few. How many of you guys just know you're probably not going to see it? Like, you don't really care. I feel you. <laughs> I went. I loved it. For some of us, it was the start of the summer movie season that probably won't be top now. It might not be top this summer. might not be top this year by that movie. But for others of us, it's like, cool. I guess another movie came out, and you probably care less about it than I did about all 13 Harry Potter movies, right? And That's not me talking down on Harry Potter. How can you talk down on Harry Potter when you're talking about a movie based on a comic book? But uh, I have a friend who cares very much about these films. He's actually a college friend. Knew him 10 years ago when I was in college, but we still text, and he'll, he'll hit me up after these movies come out, and we'll talk. What did you think? And anytime it does not line up exactly with the comic book plot, he has beef with the movie. And I have beef with that entire theory because, for instance, the X-Men, which he is passionate about, they've killed off every character six times and brought them back. They've re rebooted their entire franchise a dozen times. So I'm like, what plot are you even talking about? But he cares. It better look like the book. It's his conviction. Or it could make $11 billion and win 11 Grammys, and he's not feeling it. Grammys. You don't win Grammys. Oscars, right? Little gold trophies. Yep. But that's his conviction, that these movies should look like the book. And our conviction as disciples should be that we look like the book, the Bible, God's heart, Jesus. You know, Jesus' disciples and the people who took his call to make disciples, just to reference three of them here, John in 1 John 2, 6 says that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 21 
said, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Again, to go back to Matthew 5.48, it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you do that, you'll be living as Jesus did, the one man in history who lived life to perfection with God's commands and perfect obedience. And when you hear these things, it's not about changing what God made. You think, oh, well, God's trying to change me. Maybe, but it's more about fixing what he created and what we've broken. You look in Romans 8, it says, before he created, before he called us, created us, his will was that we be conformed to the image of his son. And his son's image, I think a lot of us could pick it out of a lineup. If we had a lineup up here on the TV screens, right? It's the guy with the, the nice beard, the long blonde hair. Probably could put it up in a nice little man bun. See him at the local coffee shop, right? Blue eyes. A lot of the portraits of Jesus, they, they look like that. If you don't agree with me, this here is the Salmon head. They call it the Salmon head. It's a portrait of Jesus. To me, it looks kind of like the Saruman head because I figured he'd have that beard, the long hair. But this is the Salmon head. Show of hands, who's seen this before? Anybody who's ever been in a church built before like 1990, right? This was hanging on a wall. But this is the Salmon head. It's painted by Warner Salmon in 1940. Outside of Da Vinci's Last Supper, people say this is the most influential, significant painting of Jesus all time. So one scholar, he, he went out and he started asking people questions because this is a meaningful painting. It's in a lot of churches. A lot of people had this in their homes. And he was asking them questions about it. And as one woman put it, the picture appeals to her simply because it shows just what Jesus looked like. <laughs> I'm glad y'all laughed because then you'll, you'll bear with me. I mean, yeah, she said it's just what Jesus looked like. Now, first of all, the Bible doesn't really say anything about what Jesus looked like. So I don't know where she's getting her, her sources but uh, to me, when I look at this, another rabbit trail, I think of, you remember Olin Mills? Like JCPenney photography, the blurred contours. Uh, they have you kind of looking up to the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it looks a little bit like this. See if it comes, yeah, there we go. It's kind of what it reminds me of. But that's the thing, I, I look at that and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how accurate that is. Right? The Hillsong College Jesus looks like he just graduated. I, I laugh sometimes when I see like, the next movie that's coming out or the History Channel doing something. I'm like, he looks like he just graduated Hillsong College and now he's looking to start his church and he's gathering his disciples. And it's harmless until racial bias, prejudice takes it and run with it. And then you have to say, pause. But we went to the DR recently, a couple months ago. You go to the DR, there's a, a great shop with all kinds of paintings. I love that. I was an art major. I'm like in there critiquing it, grading them in my head. And you get pictures of Jesus down there where he's got dreadlocks, really dark complexion, because that to them is relatable. That's approachable. And people will make a depiction of Jesus that is approachable. The familiarity of this portrait of Jesus, coupled with the, the tenderness of the portrait. Again, the, the Olin Mills contours in the brush strokes. It's what makes this so beloved in our culture. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, again. But when we genuinely encounter Jesus with our life, it should work the other way. That we begin to look more like Jesus. Not that he begins to look more like us. Again, we don't know what Jesus looked like 
physically, but that's not the point. The point of discipleship is that Jesus' heart becomes our heart. Spiritually, we're called to look like Jesus, Christians, little Christs. And that had to do with their hearts, not their looks. There were women who were Christians. There were people that, you know, probably looked nothing like Jesus, called Christians because it had to do with their hearts. You know, I used to be consumed with this idea of one day having a mini-me running around, not literally like mini-me from Dr. Evil and Austin Powers, but like a small child with my DNA, my face, my hair running around our house, and, and that's a hope deferred for now. Like, just think about it. I mean, it's crazy. I'm sure you that have kids have looked down and be like, that, that's my, that kid has my DNA, my blood, my bad habits, unfortunately, right? And, and it's, it, I can't wrap my head around that. And for now, it's a hope deferred, and we're working on adopting, and we're adopting a child from India. That, that kid is not going to have my DNA, right? He's not going to have my hair, you know, but hopefully... As we raise him, disciple him, he, he has our heart for God, for the church, for people. That's our hope. And you know, it's the same for sons and daughters of God, that we would ultimately have the heart of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we do know what his heart looked like. It's portrayed not only in the gospel, but God's heart throughout the Bible, and that's the portrait we're to be consumed by. And we're not only supposed to be portraits, but you could say we're called to be sculptures, because Again and again in Scripture, we're called clay in the hands of God. I believe it's Isaiah 64, Jeremiah 18. They speak prophetically of your clay in the hands of a potter. Job speaks of it in his book, and Paul speaks of it in his letters. And they talk about being vessels and being formed by God. And we can't be transformed if we only throw a little piece of clay here and a little piece of clay here and say, hey, do something with that, God. Transformation takes everything. It takes your whole life, all the clay of your life, your entire heart. Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 in the New Living Translation says, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he would find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It says, don't conform to the world. But again, if we turn back to Romans 8, he talks about, he wants us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And that's not saying be separate from the world. He's saying be set apart, but he's not saying be separate. Why would you have to worry about being conformed to the world? Because you're out in the world. Why would you be out in the world? Because that's where Jesus called you to be in the Great Commission. That's where God called us to be when we planted this church, out in the world sharing what we have. But, you know, I used to look at painting like this one and laugh. And, again, I would look at casting for movies and, and laugh and think, it's another blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Hillsong College Jesus. But then I, I just remember God challenging me once just with the thought that you mock these misrepresentations of Jesus' hair and his eyes and, and his skin, but what about when you misrepresent his heart? And that, <laughs> that hit pretty deep. You know, thinking, what, what portrait am I painting? With my life, with the fruit of my life, what portrait of Jesus am I giving to the world? Because when I compromise his commands to me, when I compromise his purpose for me, I compromise the picture he wants me to paint of Jesus' heart, who Jesus was, and how Jesus feels for the world. And in the same way, we 
as a church, as a Christian culture. Sometimes we can take Jesus, his commands, his teachings, and try to make them more palatable, try to make them more welcoming and more approachable by changing them, but really we're changing the heart of Jesus. We're making our own version of Jesus that's just as much a mockery as a blonde-haired Jesus. What portrait am I painting with my life? And I realize that whenever I'm misrepresenting Jesus' heart, I need to throw my whole life back on the potter's wheel. Not give him a little bit and piece here, but give him my everything all over again. Because I want to paint a portrait of Jesus that draws people to Jesus. Not bits and pieces, but all my life. And not just for a moment, but all my life, for my lifetime. And again, I was an English and art major at William & Mary, so I heard over the years a thousand different variations of the quote, a painting is never finished. And then fill in the blank. <laughs> I think Leonardo da Vinci said, a painting is never finished, it's, it's, a, it's just abandoned. And then there's other people that say, a painting is never finished, you just get to a good point. But there's a, a quote that said, a painting is never finished. I just stopped working on it for a while. And my prayer for us tonight, as we press through the 6, the 12, and the 24, and what those are for us in discipleship and becoming more like Christ, is that, that we won't stop working on it. We'll press through. Every day, we'll think, how can I look more like Jesus today? That we won't abandon the portrait we're called to paint. And we wouldn't settle for something that misrepresents Jesus. So that's the one. Imitate Christ. Paint a portrait of Jesus with your life. The six in the one, the six, the 12, and the 24 are these six focuses. You might ask, what does it look like to give God your life, your all, and put your life on that potter's wheel and say, God, I'm giving you everything. Your heart and soul should be identified by these six focuses, these six passions. Devotion to Christ, intimacy with God, being equipped by the Spirit, care of others, diligence in mission, and appetite for growth. If you want to memorize those, I always think the left, there you got the Holy Trinity, right? Jesus, Christ, or God, and the Spirit. And then care of others, diligence in mission, and appetite for growth. Now, these six are simultaneously self-explanatory, and yet I could preach on each one of them for like a month. But tonight, as we press through, to quote Qui-Gon Jinn, your reality is determined by your focus. I think I just said it like Yoda. I think he said your focus determines your reality, right? But it's true. Your perspective, your focus, your passion in life will either cripple you or propel you. And when these six six things are at the heart of your focus, you'll be propelled along what we call the 12 pathways. But you see, it's funny because when we talk about transformation, painting a portrait of Jesus, when it comes to transformation, we want like teleportation. We want microwave growth. We, we want to know how we can get from point A to point B in Jesus the fastest. How can I just, what is it, in Mario, you just go 10 times faster or jump, jump a level. How do you do that in the Christian life? But Christianity, following Christ, doesn't have shortcuts, but it's got pathways. In Jeremiah 6, 16, it says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. I love this word, ancient. It just reminds us that these are timeless. We could go another 100, 200, 2,000 years as a church, and we're still going to be called to these things. Walk in it. it means put them into practice. Test ourselves in them. Look at our lives. Am I walking in this? It's why we call them pathways, because, again, you want to get from point A to point B in growth. If you're walking in these 12 pathways, you'll get there. And this is a lot like the six. I could spend a week on each, but I'm just going to give a little, little taste of each. A lot of these we've already preached on as a church, and I can reference you to the podcast. I probably will as we go. But we call them 12 pathways, and these are the 12 pathways. The first 
Scripture. God's word, divinely inspired, divinely recorded, speaking to us. In, in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. People might come to me and say, hey, man, God feels silent. Like, pick up your Bible, read it out loud. That's God speaking, right? That is the word of God. That is a treasure unlike anything else. And we've got it sitting on our bookshelf. We've got it sitting in our house. The word of God, scripture. That's a treasured pathway. And then prayer. You read about what he's saying in the word. Talk to him about it. Talk back. You have other people who come up to me like, God feels distant. Well, What's your prayer life look like? Because communication, relationships, if you've ever been in one or you're married, you know it's a two-way street, right? You're reading the word, are you praying? Are you speaking to God? And then fasting in Matthew 6, verses 17 through 18, we see that it empowers our prayers. And fasting is just this idea of going without food or might just be one kind of food. Soda. It might be social networks. It might be TV. But giving something up so you can sow that time and your focus into a relationship and fellowship with God. And then we see worship. And if you were here tonight, you know, we do it a little loud here. We, uh, we like Davidic worship. And that's not about the volume, although it does say, hey, wake up the dawn. So, hey, whatever. But expressive. You know, David commands his soul to sing as an overflow of his devotion. In Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word dwell in you richly. And a result in that verse is that you will sing psalms and hymns. It's one of the results of the word being in us richly. And singing doesn't define our worship. Again, if you read Romans 12, worship is so much bigger. But singing is our physical expression of intimacy with God. And we do that every week here when we gather. It's the next pathway coming together with the church body for worship. And, and I know maybe the, the church has hurt you. I know of plenty of people, unfortunately, because the church is full of and led by, and I can tell you that as a pastor, imperfect people. And there are people that have been hurt by the church. But that doesn't mean we should give up on the church. My family has hurt me. <laughs> I haven't given up on my family. I haven't given up on the institution of a family. Keep looking for one. Maybe this isn't the church for you. Keep looking. If you're looking for the perfect one, though, stop. There was a perfect church. I set foot in it. It's immediately imperfect because I've ruined it because <laughs> I'm imperfect. The goal isn't to become a, a connoisseur of churches. The goal is to become a covenant member of a church where you can get rooted, where you can find things like the ones we're about to go over, relationship, accountability, service, all these things. So, yeah. Shameless plug, Discovering City Life, June 4th. Come find out what we're about. And hey, maybe you need to stop being a connoisseur and become a covenant member of a church. But relationships, the same way with the church, don't let past hurts rob you of future joys. You know, love in its essence makes you vulnerable. Opening up your heart to somebody makes you vulnerable. Yet 1 John makes it very clear, if we love God, we're called to love people. You can't love people. You can't walk in relationship with people without loving people and investing in relationship. We're called to the pathway of relationships. And when you walk in relationship, you step into not all relationships, but some that are accountability. This idea of is there a voice in your life, as Pastor Fred likes to say, when they tell you no, does it give you pause? People that you can call when you're discouraged, people that you can call when you're doubting, people that can, you can call when you're feeling tempted, 
You know, accountability somehow has been placed behind this veil of weakness in a culture where we just, we champion independence. But in our walk, we'll never overcome those weaknesses that God wants us to overcome if we don't walk in the pathway of accountability. We don't look for people to not just encourage us, champion us, and cheer us on, but to challenge us in moments where we need to be challenged and call us forward in growth. And then reaching. When you've walked in all these pathways that we've already gone over, there should be something that stirs in your heart that, man, if more people got a taste of this, the life that God has for us in these pathways, man, how would their lives be transformed? And reaching is just another word for evangelism. And we've said a, a ton of times here at City Life, as we like to say here at City Life, as we like to say here at City Life. If you've been coming here for a while, you know what I just said, but Fred likes to say that. As we like to say here at City Life, your relationship with God should be intensely personal, but never private. And I've, I've quoted it probably three times since we got planted, but if the gospel of Jesus Christ in you isn't touching others, then it probably hasn't impacted you the way it should. Come on, reaching should be a part of our daily life. And like Anthony was saying to the announcements, something we, I feel like I can always work on. I go to Starbucks, I've been challenged, man, maybe I shouldn't throw my noise-canceling headsets on and stare at a wall while I'm there and studying. Maybe I should take those off and, as I'm studying, interact with people, right? Again, my goal is to get every single one of those baristas in here. I'm going to reach the entire uh, Chesapeake Square Starbucks. It's my goal in the next six months. <laughs> but reaching, service, you know, in youth ministry, I used to have youth all the time, like, what's my gift? What's my calling? What's my purpose? And I would tell them, start serving in the church, and all your gifts, your callings, they'll, they'll begin to reveal themselves. As you just knock the dust and the rust off, and you begin to serve, you begin to understand how God created you. But there's got to be a balance in service with rest. Again, this idea that the people we love so much in this room that we're called to invest in, we can't fracture them by working them to death. We can't fracture the families that we've been called to, to build and invest in. We've got to champion rest. And again, if you want to go back in the Welcome Home series, we talked an entire weekend about rest, how rest isn't just unplugging from the world. It's not just leisure. Rest is unplugging from that so we can plug into God. And that's biblical rest. And then we got generosity. And that was, again, a few weeks ago, we preached on generosity and giving. And we serve a generous God who generously gives grace. We serve a, a Savior who generously gave his life to, to death. And it's funny, we talked about how quickly we'll give God our sin and we'll give God our worst so that we can receive grace, and yet how begrudgingly and how much we can cling to things that he's, offer, he's telling us to be generous and give back to him. It's powerful when you think about it. And it's not just finances. It's your times, your giftings, your... your, your uh, focus, all these things, being generous with those things. And then lastly, stewardship, the other side of the coin. You can be generous when you realize, as it says in Psalm 24, 1, that all the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything from my, my next paycheck to my next breath, right, is provided by a gracious God. And again, that's just a brief overview of these 12 pathways. And a week could be preached on each. And if you dig in our podcast, a week has been preached on each. But there's some overarching principles as well. Fred, eventually he's going to write a book, and I'm sure he'll have like 13, 20 principles in there for these pathways, but I just want to hit on three. The first is the principle of collection. How many of you guys collected baseball cards or any sports cards back in the day? I used to, how many of you guys used to get an allowance back in the day, right? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. 
people that get like $20 allowances, I'm like, who are you? What is that? I used to get a dollar. I don't even think it was every week. Some weeks they're like, nah, you're not getting it. And you're like, hey, keep doing your chores and maybe you'll see it next week. But we, I would take that dollar and I would try to, as fast as I could, get to like the hobby store that was around the corner that sold baseball cards. Because back then you get a pack for a dollar. And I don't remember what year it was, but there was an upper deck set where I would just every week go buy a pack of those cards. And after enough weeks, the owner was like, why don't you just, he recognized me, he's like, why don't you just save these dollars and then buy the complete set? I was like, bro, I'm like seven years old. I haven't read Dave Ramsey yet. I don't know about this whole idea of saving so I can splurge later or any of that. And I was just like, give me the pack. And I would buy pack after pack. So I'd have like four of this card, zero of this one. And I didn't realize the, the value that comes in the full collection. And in the same way with the pathways, they're all essential. We should have all of them firing at once. And we might uh, our personalities might make us predisposed to some, but we're called to all of them. There's a value in having the complete set. We should look at the pathways in the same way. And not just is there the principle of collection, but there's also the principle of connection. Because I do one, the other is enriched. And when I was preaching on prayer, I shared, like, for me personally, nothing boosts my prayer life is when I begin to memorize scripture, especially the Psalms. I just find myself praying on a whole nother level when I can just start with a Psalm, begin speaking through it, and then just start praying. And then once you start praying, especially once you start asking people, what do I need to pray for you for? You see the pathway of relationships grow. And as the pathway of relationships grow, you begin to step into relationships where there's accountability. As relationships grow, you can't wait to get to church and see them, and you see the pathway of gathering grow. All these pathways are connected. It's the principle of connection. And then lastly, again, I could probably roll through a dozen of these, but there's the principle of succession. Build one or two, and then work on the next. Perfectionism can be such a thief of progress, but progression starts with succession. Start somewhere. Start with something. If you can't Rest for 24 hours, start with 12. You can't read for an hour and a half, start with 15 minutes. But start somewhere. Start with a couple. Abe Lincoln said, hey, the best part about the future is it comes a day at a time. Take it day by day, pathway by pathway. God created in six days. Could he have done it in a day? Probably. He's God, right? But he teaches us progress. Day by day, take it day by day. A good start if you're thinking, man, where do I start? Scripture. Scripture, gathering, service. Again, Scripture is just the revelation that God gives us. There's, there's nothing more valuable, but then gathering, as we come here on a night like tonight, all the pathways that are firing from worship to prayer to, to the word to, to conversations where there's accountability. You come into a church setting like this, so many pathways are being walked. And then lastly, serving. Again, you might not know what your giftings or callings are, but when you start serving in a church, not only do you build relationship with those you're serving with, but you'll begin to realize the way God has shaped you to walk these out. And really, walking these out is what it's all about. How many of you guys have heard of Francis Chan? Great teacher of the word, great author. Uh, he, he's got his own little uh, word on discipleship. And, and, and he's like, again, discipleship itself, hard to define. But I know what discipleship's not. And this is him talking. He said, if I tell my daughter to clean her room, she doesn't come back two hours later and say, well, Dad, I memorized what you said. You said, go clean your room. Or she doesn't come back two hours later and say, hey, God, I learned how to, or excuse me, Dad, I learned how to say, go clean your room in Greek. 
Or she doesn't come back two hours later and say, Dad, I'm going to get together with a group of my friends and talk about what you meant by go clean your room. No, the idea when he tells you go clean your room is to go clean your room. And in Scripture, we can write these down. We can memorize the references that are on the screen. But the idea is that we walk these out. And the pathways, these set our course to a life that looks more like Jesus. And, and lastly, oh, good, I got some time, this is the 24. As you walk these 12 pathways, you, you begin to see 24 virtues growing in your life. And maybe you're like, where do you get the number 24? Like, that seems so random. But there's five growth lists in Scripture that these work from. Matthew 5, 3 through 10, Romans 12, 9 through 21, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Galatians 5, 22, and 1 Peter 1, 5. Again, you want your life to paint a portrait of Jesus? These are like the colors that are on our palette. This is what we work with. Each one of these virtues operating in our lives. And it, you get to, again, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. And verse 8, Peter says, the more you grow like this, the more you grow in these virtues, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying, hey, the more you grow in virtue, the more useful and productive you are to the kingdom. The better portrait you'll paint of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, these virtues, these pathways, as we walk them out, they'll look different for different people. Generosity is going to look different from somebody that, like us in our income bracket in the United States than somebody in a third world country, right? Relationships going to look different for somebody in an urban environment than somebody in a rural environment whose town's like 10 people in one stoplight. It's going to look different for different people. And how many of you guys have ever done the, the wine and design classes? Nobody? Seems like a decent date night. Oh, you've done it with your mom. I'm like, dang, we've never done that. Who'd you go with? <laughs> but wine and design, the idea is you go and you're all painting the same thing, the same image. And you, you've got the same palette. You're working from the same canvas. You probably got the same style brushes. And yet at the end of that night, every single one of those paintings looks a little bit different. People using different brush strokes. Mixing colors different. Some people probably don't even think to mix the colors, but you know, whatever that might be. They all look different. There's a diversity. And in the same way in the church, as, as we walk out these pathways, as walk, we have these virtues, this fruit in our lives, it's going to look different in different people. Again, according to how God created you, according to your personality, according to your socioeconomic background, according to your ethnic background. We champion those things, that diversity. But one thing we don't champion is a diversity in character. Because we're all called to paint a portrait of Jesus. No matter what the end product looks like, and it's never going to be perfect, but we're all called to the same pathways. We're all called to the same virtues and the same fruit in our lives. The question is, what portrait are you painting? Christians should be Christ-like. We, we bear his name. In Antioch, they were discipled so that they looked like Christ so much they were called Christians. There's a great story about Alexander the Great. He once found a soldier in his ranks who was accused of cowardice in the face of the enemy. When asked his name, the soldier replied, Alexander. To this, Alexander the Great replied, either change your name or change your behavior. <laughs> See, our culture bears the name Christian so lightly. Three quarters of our nation claims to be Christians. But we walk whatever path we choose, and we paint this obscure confusing portrait of the heart of Jesus. And God would say, hey, either change your name or change your behavior. 
when you're lacking in the 24 virtues, when you lack this fruit in your life, it shows. Because if you're not having good fruit, there's probably bad fruit, rotten fruit. And we end up painting a lackluster, inaccurate portrait of the heart of Jesus. And when it shows up and you realize it, as even I realized recently, man, I need to step up the pathway of reaching. Or you just realize, man, something's off. Somebody comes to me and says, my faith just seems like it's floundering. Then I'll go back and say, look at these 12 pathways. Is there one that's lacking? And if none of them are operating, I'll say, well, are these six things, are they a focus of your life? And if they're not, then I'll be like, well, is God Lord of your life? Are you seeking to imitate Jesus with your life? As you talk about 24, 12, 6, and 1, and all these numbers, Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love him with everything. People, passion, it's not an option. It's a calling. Romans 12, 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. In Hebrews 12, it talks about how, man, this faith is like a race. And there's going to be times when you feel like you're running out of energy. But he says, hey, look at Jesus who endured the cross for you. And I love the message version where it says that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Because he gave his life to his dying breath. Come on, let's give him ours. Everything. Throw our whole life on the potter's wheel and let him make us vessels and portraits of his son. So if we could close, I could have the worship team come up. As we get ready to close, I read this book, I think it was earlier this year, it's called Silence. It's by Shusaku Endo, a Japanese author. It's about missionaries who go to Japan in the 17th century. Had me ready to, to go back and write like a term paper on it. There were so many images, so many themes that just were interwoven throughout the book. And one of them is the face of Jesus. He continually thinks, man, ponders the face of Jesus and there's a quote in here where he says, as for me, perhaps I am so fascinated by his face because the scriptures make no mention of it. Precisely because it is not mentioned, all its details are left to my imagination. From childhood, I've clasped that face to my breast, just like the person who romantically idealizes the countenance of one he loves. Come on. He talks about how it's not mentioned. But one thing that is mentioned is the heart of Jesus what he cared about, what drove him, what he was passionate about. And when you think about Jesus' appearance, if you go back to the prophet Isaiah, he said two things about Jesus' appearance. One, it wasn't one that would draw people to him. Basically, Jesus didn't walk out of an Abercrombie and Fish catalog, right? He was not on the cover of GQ. And the second was that his face was beaten and bruised for us. Isaiah says, beyond recognition. And the face of Jesus comes up again and again in this book, Silence, because it's about these missionaries to Japan where they were being persecuted. Christians were being persecuted. They were being forced to apostatize, give up their faith, renounce their faith. And they would have them either spit on a painting or, or, of Jesus or, or step on a, a sculpture of Jesus. And it said these paintings would become dull and blurred and these sculptures of Jesus would become nicked and worn out to where it didn't really even look like Jesus anymore. And people just stepping on it. You know, God wants us to step onto these pathways so that we can paint clear portraits of Jesus Christ, what his heart was. We may not know what he physically looked like, but we know what his heart looked like. And when we become Christians, it's no longer about making Christ look like us, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, whatever it might be. Our heart is supposed to look like his heart. And then we truly show the world what Jesus was all about and how he loved the world. Again, God wants to conform us to the likeness of his son. 
but to conform, to be transformed, that starts in our heart. As our heart is transformed, it should inform the way we live, and as we live, should inform the world of Jesus Christ and his heart for the world. So the question we should all go home with tonight is, what portrait am I painting? What picture of Jesus' heart do I show the people I interact with daily? The people I walk beside at work, the family I live with, what portrait am I painting? Let's not paint a picture of Jesus' heart that's according to our wants, it's according to our approach at life or what we think it should be. Let's let the portrait of Jesus' heart be the one we see in Scripture, the one that we see in the one, the six, the 12 pathways, the 24 virtues. Let's use those to paint an accurate portrait of Jesus. Again, what portrait are you painting? What paths are you walking? What fruit is evident in your life? These are questions I want us all to go home with and ponder, but even now as we worship, we step into this moment of worship, just where you're at, pray. We're going to come back to a moment of focused prayer. But come on, can we worship together? Let's stand as we go into this song. We're going to sing Holy Spirit. But let's stand and sing and ask ourselves, <laughs> what portrait am I painting? What would the Holy Spirit say I need to grow in my life? What virtue or fruit is lacking? Holy Spirit, help us to be aware of your presence here. God that wants to change us and convict us, but ultimately call us forward. Ultimately, call us forward into life and life abundant. So Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, we worship you tonight. Worship you now.